Pastor Xavier Reese with a humble recognition of the need for repentance. Create in me a clean heart, Lord. Renew a right spirit or a steadfast spirit within me. Continue, not the way I used to be, but better, newer. Restore the joy of my salvation. How? By understanding that my sin has been completely forgiven and done away. There is something to be joyous about. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. The psalmist David felt that it wasn't enough if God simply cleaned up the heart he had. The plea to create of Psalm 51 indicated he needed a new heart from God. In this, David anticipated one of the great promises of Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. But that's just one of the many simple truths Pastor Xavier unpacks for us as he continues a verse-by-verse series of the Psalms. Let's listen. The Psalms have been used throughout history at times for the hymnal. Just sing the Psalms and uh, put music to them. That's what they were written for, many of them. Even today in our contemporary Christianity of today, we, many of the Psalms have been taken and put to music and they're great comfort because they are men and women uh, who went through real experiences and they needed to depend upon God. And so we come to Psalm 50, which is a psalm of Asaph, and he was a chief musician under David. You remember David divided the priesthood and all the different uh, sections of the choruses and everything, and you can find him in 1 Chronicles 15, 16, and 2 Chronicles chapter 29. It is the first of 12 psalms attributed to Asaph. The psalm here declares man's forgetfulness of God, which results in sin, which God will ultimately judge. Whenever we forget about God, isn't it interesting how easy it is to kind of just return back to sin? When we uh, leave our first love, we, we leave the commitment that we made at one time, how easy it is to just get caught up and bound up somewhere else. You know, you show me a husband or a wife who ceases to cultivate the relationship with each other. And I'll show you a husband or a wife who's going to begin looking somewhere else and flirting with any opportunity. And before you know it, they're disloyal. They're unfaithful. And so it is with our relationship with God. We need to make sure that we stay on fire, even as the book of Revelation says, Jesus says, you know, it's better that you're hot or cold. If not, you know, lukewarm, I spit you out of my mouth. He says, you better be turned on for me or you better just not even know me. One or the other. And so God will judge sin. And uh, it's so easy to forget all about God uh, when there's so many other things going on, especially when things are going well and it seems like we're on top of the world. But are, are we really on top of the world? That's the question. The psalm divides uh, verses 1 through 6, the call to remember the judge's coming. Verses 7 through 15, you have the correction of wrong worship by Israel. And then verses 16 through 23, you have the condemnation of the wicked. Verse 1 says, The mighty one God, the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. 
Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. And so verse 3 reminds us of the second coming of Christ that he comes to judge the earth. Revelation chapter 19 verse 11 you see him coming on a white horse with a two-edged sword going forth from his mouth. And judging the world we saw Psalm 2 that they will be gathered there in the valley of Armageddon. And yet he says he will laugh at them and have them in derision and he shall wipe them out. And so we need to remember that God is coming back to judge. Sometimes men and women live as if, you know, there is no judgment day. As if they have to give an account to no one. As if they can get away with anything. But the reality of the scriptures is that uh, no man will get away with anything. Verse 4, he says, He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth, that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And so in verses 4 and 5, we are reminded of the Bema Seat of Christ. As we are gathered to Christ, we will have to stand before the Bema, the judgment of the believers. In 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, Romans 14. We're going to have to give an account of our lives, done all that we did good and evil in our body. I'm not talking about sins that are sins of the past before we came to Christ, but the Bible does say that we're going to have to give an account of our life. And yet, if all things are consumed by the fire... We are saved even as by fire, but the whole uh, motive of salvation is that we might receive reward. That's our part of our inheritance. And yet, as He gathers the saints, we will all stand before Him. We also recognize there's a judgment of the nations in Matthew 25, verses uh, 31 through 46, where the first thing that Jesus will do when He returns to the earth after the battle of Armageddon is that he will gather the nations and he will separate them as sheep from the goat. It goes back to the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. And those that have cursed Israel, God will judge them accordingly. Those that have blessed Israel, God will judge them accordingly. Interesting how, you know, as small as Israel is, the world can do nothing against her because God has brought her back into the land. And yet, People will be judged. The nations will be judged, the Bible tells us, in regards to their treatment of Israel. In verse 6, he says, Let the heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. James 5, 9 says, The judge stands even at the door. Now, if James said that 1900 and some years ago, what should we say about it today? Should we say the judge is even halfway through the door? Almost through the door? <laughs> we need to remember that, um, that God will judge all things. In verse 7, he says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. Now God testifies against Israel. I am God your God. I will not reprove you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your flocks. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows unto the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. In other words, he's saying that he's given the sacrifice, the way by which for them to come to him, but that he's not interested in sacrifices. He's interested in a true, loving, and honest relationship. And he's rebuking Israel for getting caught up with the formalities and the ritual when God is interested in a heart relationship. 
And now we can get caught up with that, just coming to church and singing our choruses and getting our Bible study under our belt and going out. But if we lose our relationship with God, if we just make it a, a ritualistic and a formal thing and there's no real joy in relationship, there's no real commitment, there's no real persevering, there's no real agonizing when we want to do wrong and yet we strive against sin and we just hang in tough and we allow the Spirit of God to make us overcomers. I mean, that's where it's at. That's what pleases God. It doesn't bring glory to me, but it does bring glory to God. And so he says, but to the wicked he turns. God says, what right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? In other words, the, the non-believer, the wicked, uses God when it's beneficial. He says, you hate instruction, cast my words behind you. Verse 18, he says, when you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Family doesn't even cut it. I mean, this, this individual is just um, out for himself. You know, in verses 18 through 20, they're the particular sins that he partakes. And yet he's naming God. He's trying to use God's word. As if God is, um, is going to bypass it. In verse 21, he says, These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will reprove you and set them in order before your eyes. Verse 21 is interesting because they thought that God was indifferent or really approved of their conduct because he didn't do anything. When you get caught up with sin, and if you're into sin, and you're smug in it, and you're saying, Well, you know, God hasn't wiped me out. You thank God for that. But that doesn't mean that God's indifferent to your sin or that He approves of your sin. And that's always a snare, you know. We get away with something. We say, oh, well, I guess He doesn't mind. I'm the exception. Oh, no, no, you're not the exception. He is very concerned. He sees all. And He does look upon it. And as He tells the wicked here, you know, in that day, I'm going to set it before your eyes. The Bible says that the books will be opened. They'll be judged out of the books. Out of everything they did. There'll be no mistakes and everything will have to be accounted for. Many say, well, what's the reason for that? If you're going to judge me and condemn me and damn me to eternity, then why should we go over all of them? Because God is just. Just and true. And there is no mistake. And so he says now, verse 22, Now consider this, you who forget God. This is the theme of the psalm. These are people who forget God. They get caught up in their sin, in their own ways. Oh, well, you know, I mean, yeah, I used to be a Christian. Yeah, I made an altar call. Yeah, I used to go to that church. Yeah, well, I was into that when I was young, and, you know, I was ignorant. You know, but you've forgotten God? Be careful. He says, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. Whoever offers praise glorifies me. And to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. And so we have a sharp contrast here. In Psalm 51, we have a Psalm of David again to the chief musician. The occasion is when Nathan the prophet came to David after he had gone into Bathsheba. It's the fourth of seven penitential psalms. We can divide it up, the first four verses, the confession of sin. Verses 5 through 9, confession of sin nature. Verses 10 through 13, the cry for purity. Verses 14 through 19, cry of praise. And remember how David was so smug, he had not confessed a sin for a year. 
until God sent Nathan the prophet to give him a little parable. And you're familiar with the parable. He had taken Uriah's wife, killed Uriah, and Nathan put the parable to him that there was a man in his kingdom who had taken this one little ewe lamb from this man who loved it so much. And yet this man who took the ewe lamb had many of his own, and he killed it and fed it to his guests. When Nathan heard that, it, it outraged him, and, and he was angry. And the law said that he was only to make restitution, but David says, this man shall surely die. And Nathan pointed his finger, and he says, you are the man, David. But notice that it's interesting that the psalm that follows here is David gets exposed, and he is just talking about that, you know, if God is silent over your sin, don't think you've gotten away with it. David thought he had gotten away with his sin until Nathan came. And so he says in verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Notice that the forgiveness that David is calling for is based on God's mercies, his steadfast love. David is not crying for justice anymore, like in the earlier days. Why? Because he knows he's guilty. I tell you, when you're guilty, you do not want justice. You want mercy. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Iniquity means crookedness. David had veered from the way of the Lord. Cleanse my sin. Sin means to miss the mark. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. You see, when there is true repentance, there is first of all an acknowledgement of your sin, of your wrong. First of all, we have to acknowledge that we have wrong. We have failed. And then we have to confess it. And then we have to abandon it. And if it's possible and necessary, we must make restitution whenever possible. That is godly repentance. And here David, he acknowledges transgression and he says, my sin is ever before me. It's interesting. Guilt. You know, you can try to hide from God and everything else, but you know when you're guilty. And you can't enjoy the fellowship with God and you can't walk right because guilt will kill you. Even after we've confessed our sin, isn't it interesting that that becomes a sort of tool of Satan to always get down on us? Sin not only hurts me, but it, it gives the enemy a lot of ammunition. And I need to walk circumspectly. I need to be careful. And so when Satan comes to condemn me, I need to remember God's forgiveness and His grace that covers all my sin. Because I get so overwhelmed that I start listening to the enemy rather than the Word of God. Well, there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, Paul says. Because we walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh. And so I thank God for God's grace. And David here cries out for that mercy and that grace. Now he says in verse 4, Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. How is it possible that David can say that sin was really against God? Because David had a proper perspective. Every sin and transgression is directly first disobedience and it's sin against God. Secondly and indirectly, it is against the person who we offend or we hurt. And so David sinned with Bathsheba and David sinned against Uriah by taking his wife and defiling her and by taking him and having him killed. But David says, Lord, against you and only you have I sinned. 
And so he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and my sin, my mother, conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden parts you will make me to know wisdom. And so David confesses here the acknowledgement of, of sin nature. You know, there are some people who will acknowledge that they, they fail, and they, they fall short, and they make uh, mistakes, but they'll never admit that they have a sin nature. They're humanists. They believe that man is basically good. And though man is imperfect, they're not sins, they're just mistakes, and he learns from them. And, and he's virtually good. He doesn't have a sin nature. The Bible speaks both about the fruit and the root. The root is we have sin nature, and we sin because we are sinners by nature. You cannot sin if you're not a sinner. Just like you can't fly if you're not a bird. One follows the other. And so David acknowledges here the sinfulness of man from his youth, from his birth. He says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. The hyssop was a little plant when they put the blood over the lentil and the doorpost. They would sanctify the doorpost and some of the sacrifice they would do it also. He says, Cleanse me, purge me, wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Isaiah chapter 1 speaks about, Though your sins be red as crimson, they shall be white as snow. God is pleading with man. He says, Come, let's reason together. Come and confess your sin. I will forgive it. God pleads with us that we might come to Him. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. You know, when we're away from God and we're rebellious, there's no joy. But when there's confession and restoration, man, that joy returns because we're right with God. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all of my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and upon me with your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Notice there that he cries out for a clean heart. Create in me a clean heart, Lord. Renew a right spirit or a steadfast spirit within me. Continual, not the way I used to be, but better, newer. Restore the joy of my salvation. How? By understanding my sin has been completely forgiven and done away. And God does not hold me responsible. There is something to be joyous about. And so he cries out that he would not take his Holy Spirit from him. And then he says the result will be that I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. See, that's the great advantage we have. We can go to sinners and say, you know what? You need to ask God to forgive you of your sins because you won't believe what happens to your life. The peace, the joy. I mean, you don't have to run with guilt or anything else. Man, you've got to experience it. We can tell that experientially to the other people. We can share the gospel and we do it out of love because we know what it is to be forgiven. And that's a tremendous motive. And so he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, the murder of Uriah, O God. The God of my salvation and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show your, forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. What's he talking about there? A broken spirit, a contrite heart. He's talking about godly repentance, which results in the abandonment of your sin and renewed obedience. Remember that Samuel told Saul, it's better to obey than to sacrifice and to hearken to the fat of rams in 1 Samuel 15, 22. 
God doesn't desire sacrifices. He just wants obedience. That's all he wants from you and me. And so David cries out from his heart here the acknowledgement. Do good in your good pleasure, Josiah. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifice of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offerings. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. And so he finishes with adoration and praise and thanksgiving. In Psalm 52, we have another Psalm of David to the chief musician, a contemplation which means instruction. Psalm 52 to 55, they're all labeled instruction, contemplation. The occasion is when Doeg, the Edomite, told Saul that David had gone to the house of Ahimelech. You remember that David was fleeing from Saul because Saul was attempting to kill him. And he didn't have a sword, he didn't have food. He went to Ahimelech and he asked him if he could have the showbread that was offered. Every week they would be renewed. He asked if the men had kept themselves from women. He says, yes, they ate it. But Doeg, the Edomite, he was there. He saw David. He went back and told Saul. Saul went down there and interrogated Ahimelech. And he accused him of aiding David as one who had betrayed Saul. And he commanded that 85 of the priests be killed. But the servants would not kill the priests. They feared God. And so he told Doeg, you kill him. He didn't hesitate. He wiped them out. One of the priest's sons got away and went and told David. And David felt so bad because he held himself responsible for the death of all the priests because he had gone there. And so this is David's psalm. It contrasts the wicked and the righteous. Verses 1 through 4, you have the character of the wicked. Verse 5 through 7, the clear destruction of the wicked. Verse 8 and 9, the character of the righteous. He says, Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor cutting deceitfully. And so once again, speaking of Doeg here, the man who was treacherous and evil in his tongue, and he caused the death of these 85 priests. He delighted in the outcome of wickedness, which led to destruction. The tongue, James chapter 3, verse 1 through 10, speaks about the tongue, a fiery, poisonous little member that sets the world on fire. And certainly we as Christians are no exemption to that. Boy, I tell you, the tongue, but don't forget that the problem is really not the tongue, but it's the heart. The tongue is just the instrument that really spills over from the heart and manifests what's in the heart. And we have to be careful. Verse 3 says, You love evil more than good, and lying rather than speaking righteousness. You love all devouring words and deceitful, you deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, He is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. Here's the contrast. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise you forever because you have done it. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name for it is good. What a contrast between the wicked and the righteous. The righteous is like a tree planted by the rivers of water, as Psalm 1 says. But the wicked delights in the wickedness and strengthens himself by his riches and the wickedness in which he lives. But the ultimate destruction will be of the wicked.
let the mighty ones boast. We will wait on the Lord. Pastor Xavier Reese, pausing for today with the simple truth of Psalm 52 and David's righteous response to evil. And you can hear this message again, if you like, online anytime by selecting today's date under the radio tab at calvarychapelpasadena.com. But you can also request your own CD copy of this study from a verse-by-verse series of the book of Psalms. Today's message is simply titled Psalms chapters 50 through 58 and is available for only $4 upon request. And by the way, we'll be including much more material on the CD than our limited time on the air allows. So once again, the title to ask for is Psalms chapters 50 through 58. Or you can always just mention today's date when you write Simple Truths. 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Again, that's Simple Truths. 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And it's helpful when you mention the call letters of this station when you contact us. And then join us for more Simple Truths from the Book of Psalms right here next time with Pastor Xavier Reese. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 